We are indeed going to finish the Gospel of Mark this morning um, by looking at Mark chapter 16. Uh, when I titled this final standalone sermon, uh, I was doing it in my head, I was doing it on paper, and it turned out to be a little bit unpronounceable. So I kind of have to illustrate uh, the title for you. If you can imagine somebody writing the end of the gospel over this sermon on Sunday, and then me leaning over their shoulder and scratching out the word end and writing in a big font beginning, uh, that is uh, what we're going to be looking at. Not the end of the gospel, although clearly it is the end of the gospel of Mark, but in a very sig significant way, the beginning of the good news. So if you have a, your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 16. Um, I'll give you just a second to turn there, and then we are going to read the first eight verses together. Before we read here, remember we left uh, the gospel last week with Jesus dead and buried and some women who were close to him, uh, seeing where he was buried and then rushing home to observe the Sabbath when no work could be done. Uh, and so now we pick up uh, a few days later on Sunday morning in verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is simply to know you, not just to know about you as we read from this text of the history of your crucifixion and resurrection, but to know the risen Lord Jesus. And so we pray as we open your word that you would open our hearts and that by your spirit you would teach us, that you would enliven this text to us, that you would convict us and comfort us. Uh, that you would draw us to see you in a new way, and that that would bring us to our knees in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we see here the women come to the tomb. They come to honor Jesus by anointing his body. Uh, they want to do the things that the Sabbath limited them from doing uh, when Jesus was buried. But the fact that they come late presents a problem. 
the tomb of Jesus had been blocked by a large stone. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew, this was because some Jews were afraid that Jesus's body would be stolen and then a resurrection would be proclaimed. Now, the women aren't really concerned about that particular plot. What they are concerned about uh, is that these stones are relatively large and much easier to roll into place than roll out of place. It's just a, a, a uh, an obstacle uh, in them being able to do what they want. But not only do they find the stone rolled away, but in the tomb, they don't find the body of Jesus. Instead, a young man uh, dressed in white is sitting there and he has a message for them that Jesus, who was crucified, has risen, is not here. And then he gives them a commission. He says, go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus will see you in Galilee. And then we see as they go out and flee from the tomb, um, they're astonished and they are silent because they are afraid. Now, the first thing I want us to see this morning is that this passage is more than history. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's less than history. In fact, there are historical markers here that are significant to note. Notice, for example, that Mark takes the time to list for us the three women who visit the tomb in ways that we can identify them. Whereas most of the gospel just uses first names, here we have Mary Magdalene, probably meaning the Mary from Magdala. Uh, we have Mary, the mother of James, and then we have Salome. Uh, now, what's interesting is, apart from Mary, the mother of James, who is probably Mary, the mother of Jesus, James being Jesus's younger brother, um, these other women, Mary Magdalene and Salome, are not mentioned anywhere else in the gospel, except in the previous, uh, previous verse there uh, at the end of chapter 15. So why would Mark suddenly introduce new characters in the literal conclusion of his book? It's because these women are eyewitnesses. This is testimony given by eyewitnesses, and so their identifying uh, characteristics are given. In fact, we saw something similar in the crucifixion of Jesus back in Mark chapter 15. In one of the strangest details that Mark includes in his gospel, when Jesus is on his way to be crucified and is carrying the crossbar of his cross, he's too weak from the scourging that he's endured. He collapses, and it tells us in chapter 15, verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why does he include that detail? Do you know who Alexander and Rufus are? Why does he take the time not just to tell us Simon and his place of origin, he's from Cyrene, but also his two sons and name them? Clearly, it's because the audience that he's writing to in Rome knows personally Alexander and Rufus. It's like when your mother is telling a story about when she went to the grocery store, and then she says, and then I ran into Alan, and she says, you know Alan, his kids are so-and-so, they were in your third grade class, right? It is a, uh, an aside, but it is also an earmark of how historical 
Mark's record is here. It's a personal detail that connects the original audience with the original event. And so when we read these three names here, it is worth recognizing that what we are reading this morning is not a story, not just a religious text, but a historical happening. And that's true. In fact, there's another thing that marks this as such, because maybe the skeptic inside you goes, well, sure, it could be. But if I was going to write about something as outlandish as a person coming back to life, I would want to write it in a way that seemed historical as well. But that's an interesting line of thought to run with Mark chapter 16 as well, because the three witnesses here, maybe you noticed, Mary, Mary, and Salome, are all women. Now, in the first century, in the Jewish world, women were not reliable eyewitnesses in a court of law. You could not uh, testify to a crime as a woman and it be counted as valid evidence. So, if Mark's desire was to trick his audience, wouldn't you expect him to use uh, respectable witnesses? Ones that could be legal representatives who could stand up in a court of law and say, I solemnly swear this is what I saw and their testimony would be received. In fact, notice even these women don't come off looking like faithful representatives of Jesus. In verse 8, they're afraid and they run away. The disciples, who you'd expect to be on the front lines here, instead, even though they're the ones who go on to convey this gospel as representatives, apostles of Jesus, they're nowhere to be found. In fact, the gospel of Mark paints the disciples as fearful and hard-headed. They forsake Jesus. Uh, And so when we look at all this and we go, why then would he paint the disciples in this light? Why then would he bring these women as witnesses? The obvious reason is because they're the ones who were there. The reason Mark tells us this story is because this is the story that happened. These are the real facts of the gospel. However, again, let me reiterate, when we read about this, we need to recognize that this is not merely history. It's not just an eyewitness testimony of something that happened. And my fear is that uh, we have a tendency, whether in regular practice and big mental perspective or just in in the one-offs of life, my fear is that we make the same mistake that these women make, that our approach to Jesus is the dead Jesus of history, the Jesus of the past. That we, uh, even if we believe in the resurrection and understand that Jesus came to life, we read our Bibles as being a text about the past and we leave it there. And the truth is, when we do that, then our lives become one, whether theologically or just merely practically, of honoring the dead. Of living our life in light of the past. This is what happened. Here are the things that Jesus said. Jesus died for me, past tense, so I will live in this way. And the truth is, I think the words of the women here provide a good inlay to why that doesn't work for us. Again, in verse 3, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
Their desire, again, was just to honor Jesus. They loved Jesus. They respected Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They held him in high esteem, and so they wanted to honor him by bathing his body in these uh, (coughs) oils and spices, preparing his body, um, anointing his body, Uh, But they recognized that there was this large stone in the way. There was this hindrance. And let me just point out that that's how life works. That because of death, history is lost to us. Honoring the dead, if the dead are dead and will be dead and will stay dead, uh, may make you feel better. But it doesn't do anything for them. As it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, The righteous and the wicked die and eventually are forgotten. What does it matter? And I think the same thing can happen even in our own Christian faith, where we leave Jesus entirely in the path and we don't recognize that, or in the past, and we don't recognize that if Jesus is merely in the past, if this is just something that happened, no matter how significant it may have been at that time, Who will roll the stone away and connect us with this? You see, there's a contrast that I want to make this morning between honoring the dead Jesus and worshiping the living Jesus. And they're not the same thing. They may orient in the same way. They may focus on the same person. They may point to the same history. But one has a big, fat gravestone rolled in front of the tomb, still closed and keeping you from what the gospel really is. As I said, the women are coming here. They believe that this is the end of the story. How they interpret that story, they may see it as beautiful or tragic or these types of things, but the story is over. It's in the past and it has nothing to do with the present. But when they come, they find that things are not as they seem. Now, in the same way that this, is, this passage is more than merely hit history, I want you to recognize that it's also more than merely eyewitness testimony. Now, the Gospels are written as a record of what happened. They're written, consider the words of Luke when he opens his Gospel. He says uh, that he has compiled his account, um, an orderly account of eyewitness testimony is the way that Luke points to it. The New Testament in other places says the same thing. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but what we have seen with our eyes. But when we get to verse 8 here, if our point is to uh, focus on the reliability of the witnesses we have here, if our focus is to think about this unending chain of testimony that goes from the first generation alive with Jesus to us today, if that's the case, then read verse 8 in this light. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Silence. Now, probably you're looking at your Bible this morning and going, but The story doesn't end there, Justin. Verses 9 through 20 has more appearances of Jesus, and eventually the disciples do here. Uh, And if you read the other Gospels, those are things that truly happen. However, the majority of biblical scholars today, almost without exception, believe that verses 9 through 20 are not part of Mark's original Gospel. Uh, 
In fact, if you look in the margins of your Bible, you'll see notes uh, that point that out. Now, most of what's, what follows in verses 9 through 20 uh, appears to be drawn from Matthew, from Luke, and from the Gospel of John. And so it's not that they aren't uh, valid witness. They just aren't the words of Mark. Now, just so I can ground this for you, um, we don't have the original autographs. We don't have what Mark originally wrote. Instead, we have copies and copies of copies that we call manuscripts. A majority of manuscripts are missing this section. Okay, uh, In many, many of our New Testament manuscripts, Mark's gospel ends with verse 8. Okay, um, On top of that, the Textus Receptus, as well as the Latin Vulgate, which is the strongest uh, basis for our Bibles today, if you're reading a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, um, the people behind those, Eusebius and Jerome, both testify to having uh, many manuscripts that lacked this in the uh, fourth, or excuse me, the fifth century and the 16th century uh, at their times. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, as well as Origen, didn't know about the ending we have in our Bible of, gospel, of the Gospel of Mark. They never mention it. So most likely, the Gospel of Mark lives, uh, ends in verse 8, which seems wild, doesn't it? Because where does the story end? Not with the appearance of the risen Lord Jesus, but with the fear and silence of these women who run away from the garden. In fact, some people have gone, look, this can't possibly be the end of Mark because why would you finish a book that way? But it's actually perfectly in theme with what we've seen throughout the Gospels, which is Jesus's consistent faithfulness and his growing revelation of who he really is juxtaposed with the failures and faithlessness of his followers. Over and over again, we have seen the disciples misunderstand Jesus we have seen the disciples misapply Jesus. We have seen them not trust Jesus. And so these cycles in the Gospel of Mark over and over again end with this final phase of retreat. But I think there's a more significant reason why Mark would end his Gospel here in verse 8. Let me remind you that Mark wrote his Gospel to Christians, people who believe that Jesus is alive, who have heard personally, from Peter the Apostle, the stories of what happens next. Uh, remember that Mark is writing this gospel to an audience that knows the ending and have all received it as truth, who worship together and believe it. Okay, So he doesn't stop in verse 8 because this is all that Mark knows. It's not like, well, that's all I can say for sure. Everything after that is not historical. That's not the point. Instead, he is trying to take the story that we've read in the entire gospel and leave it in your lap. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. Have you ever read the book of Jonah? I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Jonah, but if you read it specifically, it's very interesting because it ends with an argument between God and Jonah. God interrogates Jonah and uh, Jonah, you know, crosses his arms and complains to God about what's going on. But have you ever noticed what the last sentence of Jonah is? It's God asking a Jonah or asking Jonah a question. He says, "Would it be right 
for me to destroy this city that has all of these people who don't know their right hand from their left, along with many types of animals, the end. That's where the book ends. The book doesn't end with Jonah going, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, God, forgive me. The book doesn't even end with Jonah's response at all. It ends with a question. Would it be right? Now, why does the author of Jonah do that? Sidelight, probably the author of Jonah is Jonah. And so there's a subtle what happened next implied in the fact that we have the book. Okay, Jonah's response of repentance may happen that day, may happen years later, but eventually he goes, all right, I need to convey this story. He writes it down for us, but he leaves the ending open. Okay, I'll give you just one more illustration of how artists do this uh, with uh, Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon. Okay. Rashomon is a Japanese film that is seen as being kind of the first open door of postmodern art. Okay. And in it, uh, a, a witness of a court case who was involved in a crime is conveying to a priest the court case where every one of the witnesses gives a completely different testimony despite the fact that all of their testimonies incriminate themselves. And so the court case can't come to a conclusion on what actually happened because none of the witnesses agree. But one of the witnesses at the court case is this woodcutter who's conveying this story to the priest. And at the end of the story, after they're scratching their head about what happened, they hear a crying baby. And they go and they find this abandoned baby where they're hanging out. Um, and the woodcutter offers to take it home. And the priest says, no, I can't, I can't trust you. You just told me yourself you were involved in these things. And he says, look, I've got six mouths to feed at home. One more wouldn't be very much. And he convinces the priest to take him and walk away with the baby. And the thing that uh, Kurosawa seems to be doing in that film is making us go, wait a minute. Aren't we all dependent on the witness testimony of other people? As this woodcutter walks away, we don't know if he has children at home to feed. We don't know if he's going to sell this baby into slavery. We don't know what happens next. We're just stuck. But do you see how Kurosawa leaves the ending open, doesn't resolve everything, and puts it in our laps? I would suggest to you that Mark is doing the same thing here in this text. The question is not, what did the women eventually do? with the fact that Jesus is alive. The question is, what are you going to do with it? The question is, are you going to respond to the fact that Jesus is alive? Are you going to lead a, lead, uh, lead a life of fear or a life of faith? Again, the question for me this morning, the one that I want to ask of you as well this morning, is are you going to settle for living a life where you honor a dead Jesus or one where you worship a living one? The difference is significant because notice here that although the women are silent and they flee away, Jesus's words are once again proven faithful and true. Look again at verse 6. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid them. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus is once again proven to be faithful and even a prophet who had proclaimed to them in advance what was going to happen, and it happened just as he said. Now, let me be really clear this morning. All of our faith exists 
because of this unending testimony chain from the women here to authors like Mark and Matthew to, uh, you know, the first century church, the second century church, an unbroken chain of people conveying the words of the gospel, retelling the story, and then us believing and then passing it along and so on and so forth. So I would never want to downplay the significance of witnessing, of speaking forth and telling people what has happened in Jesus. But again, it's not for Mark merely about us as witnesses, it's about the one witness, Jesus Christ. And the truth is, although that unbroken chain, maybe even the person who shared the gospel with you uh, is dead already. Although that unbroken chain is somewhat lost to history. Even as I shared with you the ending of the mark, maybe some of you got uh, you know, a little bit of hesitation to rise in your heart. Wait, isn't the Bible trustworthy? Wait, isn't the Bible I'm reading today faithful and true? All of those are tremendously important questions. Side note, the answer is absolutely yes. And we can talk about that another time. But the point that I'm trying to make is a good one in contrast to that. It's that if Jesus is alive, then he is not merely one who spoke, but one who is speaking. There's a major difference if Jesus is alive. If someone makes you a promise and then dies, generally it's respectful to release them from their promises. Doesn't mean you won't resent them or regret, regret it or whatever, but you don't expect them to fulfill it anymore. Jesus made us a lot of promises. I think sometimes in our life, when we look at the things that Jesus calls us of and we go, boy, I'm finding this one particularly hard, so I'm going to settle for less. That reflects honoring the dead. It says, I'm giving you a vote from the, from the annals of history on my life, but that's all. But if Jesus is Lord, then we can never settle for just taking Jesus's input. Maybe you look at the things Jesus calls you to and you just go, I just can't. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I can't. And so you shelve it and you go, this is as far as I can get and this is enough. But there's a significant difference between honoring Jesus with your life and inviting him in your life to do what you cannot do. You see, the whole point of the gospel is not, here is what has happened, now what are you going to do about it? It's here is what God is present tense doing in Jesus Christ. Will you let him Will you open yourself up to it? Will you invite him in? The whole basis of prayer in our lives is not just that Jesus did something. It's that Jesus is readily available to us today. Jesus is alive. And so what are the differences between honoring Jesus as dead and worshiping Jesus as alive? The difference is one is a past tense gospel. The other is a present tense gospel. And it's amazing that in the New Testament, when it talks about what Jesus has done for us in terms of our salvation, it puts it in all three tenses. Jesus has saved you. Jesus will save you. Jesus is saving you. The reason why that works is because Jesus is alive. That's why the end of Mark's gospel is open-ended because it's not an ending at all. It's a beginning. Jesus is alive, the conqueror over death, seated at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under his feet. 
always living to make intercession for his people. Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. That is the living Jesus. That is the living gospel. And I honestly think that there are many of us, not theologically, not on the doctrine that we would assent to, but practically in our lives, who live as if Jesus is worthy of honor but dead, instead of worshiping the living Jesus who is alive, who is present, who is still working. The stone has been rolled away. There is nothing to hinder you from a relationship with Jesus now. When we open our Bibles, it's not just to hear who God is and what he has done. It's to know him personally, to hear him speaking to us now. When we pray, we're not just going through a ritual that respects a practice that is centuries and centuries old. We pray to enter into community with the living God. When we take the promises of scripture, they're not just platitudes and idealism that gives us a different attitude in life. We can take them to the bank right now because God is faithful and true. When we face sin in our life, that sin can never wash away the history of what happened, no matter its size, because Jesus is still living and ready to forgive And lastly, because Jesus is alive, it means that there is power available to us to be overcomers in our life. Not just to learn from Jesus' example, not just to sit under him as teacher, but to experience him as Savior today. And so it may be a little counterintuitive, It may be a little dark of an ending for you. It may not be a film that you would watch. I mean, this is even less than that flash of risen Jesus flesh at the end of the Passion movie, right? It's even less than that. There is no present Jesus here. And the reason is because Mark wants Jesus to be present there in your life today. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, I want to confess that I am too often content to leave you on the pages of history as significant, defining even, but as lost to the past. I thank you, Lord, that you are alive and you don't just call us to learn From what you have done, you invite us into a relationship with you now. I pray, Lord, that you would reorient our prayers, that you would reorient our thinking, and our very lives around the reality that Jesus is alive. Forgive us for making the mistake that the angel accuses the disciples of in the Gospel of Luke. Why do you seek for the living among the dead. Instead, Lord, we ask you intimately to be involved in our life, 
We give you permission to be present now. We long to hear your voice. You promised that your sheep would hear your voice, Lord. Speak to us today. When we read your word, let us read listening and not just observing. When we pray, let us not just go through the motions, but speak to the one who is there. When we make decisions, let us not just try and honor your legacy, but invite you in both to will and to do, Lord, to tell us what you want of us and then empower us to do it. And when we share you with our neighbors, with our family and with our friends, let us not just tell them the story of what happened, happened, but invite them to participate in the story today, to know the living Messiah. Father, we need you today. Jesus, we need you as Savior today. I pray, Lord, that even as we face temptation, that we would face it knowing that you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. We thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would bless us and that we would know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.